birthday. Good, good. I want to start off today with a bit of a game. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to play the Would You Rather game. Okay, so I'm going to give you two options and you are to stand up for the first option and sit down for the second option. Okay, so we're going to get to know each other a little bit today. So let's, let me give you the first Would You Rather would you rather go skydiving or deep sea diving? So stand up if you'd rather go skydiving and sit down if you'd rather go deep sea diving. All right, interesting. Interesting. Okay, you can take a seat. All right, here, here's the next one. Would you rather? Would you rather read a book or watch the movie? Read a book or in high school you watch the movie? Okay. Read a book, watch the movie. All right, we've got a lot of people who watch the movies. All right, sit down. All right, what about this one? Would you rather barrack for the Broncos or for the Dolphins? You know, stand up for the Broncos. Come on, stand up for the Broncos. Sit down for the Dolphins. All right. All right, interesting. What about, what about this one? This one might be the most divisive one in the whole church. All right. Would you rather buy an iPhone or buy an Android? So stand up if you're part of the iPhone cult and, um, and sit down if you've got Android. Good, good, good. Right, you don't have to respond to this, but uh, you don't have to respond to this, but just think this one in your mind. Would you rather sing the hymn, Holy, 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 or sing the song, In Christ Alone? You know, when you think about it, as people, we have many different preferences. Some like reading, others like watching the movie. Some support the Broncos, and for some unknown reason, some support the Dolphins. Some have belong to the cult of Apple, others have resisted that temptation. And some of us like traditional hymns, while others of us would rather more contemporary music. But even while the form of, of our worship has some significance, when we talk about worship, do we often miss the most important thing? You see, if we just focus on our preferences, on the fact that we might like hymns or some of us like more contemporary music, are we missing what is at the heart of worship? A.W. Tozer, a Christian author in the 50s, he wrote, this, he wrote these words. He said, Christian churches have come to the dangerous time predicted long ago. It is a time where we can pat one another on the back, congratulate ourselves, and join in the glad refrain, we are rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. Tozer goes on to write this. He says, It is certainly true that we are missing hardly anything from our churches these days, except maybe the most important thing. Now, Tozer penned those words more than 50 years ago, but I think that they are probably still true. We are hardly missing anything from our churches, but are we missing the most important thing? True worship. Today we're going to continue our series on the church and last week you looked at how to become a welcoming church and today we're going to look at what it means to be a worshipping church. You know, part of your vision as a church is to become a church that is devoted to worshipping Christ, a church that gathers joyfully each Sunday for corporate worship. You know, part of my hope for Mueller Church is that it won't just be, have some passionate worshippers who sit on the front rows of the church while the others are spectators, but my hope is that your church will be filled wall to wall with passionate worshippers who are going after God with everything that is within them. My hope 
is that when people who know nothing about Christ come into this building, they are infected with a fervency for Jesus. But for that to happen, you need to have the right definition of worship. A definition that goes beyond just mere preferences and and style, but goes to the very heart of what it means to offer the living God true worship. So what I want to do today is look at a biblical definition of worship, and then we're going to unpack it together in our time together. So how does the Bible define biblical worship? Well, here is a definition of biblical worship that's taken from Bob Coughlin. Bob is a worship leader and songwriter. He, he works for Sovereign Grace Music in the United States. And in his excellent book, Worship Matters, he, he defines biblical worship this way. He says, Biblical worship is the response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's now unpack that definition together. First, according to Coughlin, biblical worship is the response of God's redeemed people. You see, all other religions in the world are really man reaching up to God, whether that be Islam with its five pillars or Buddhism Buddhism with its path to enlightenment. And so all other religions of the world teach that in order to worship God, it's about what you do. It's about the rules that you follow. It's about working hard. Whereas in contrast, Christianity teaches that because of human fallenness, God had to reach down to man. But it's interesting. Even before the fall, God created human beings. He created you and I to be what I call revelation receivers. Do you know what the first thing is that God did to Adam and Eve after he created them? After he created them in his image in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. Do you know what the very first thing that God did to Adam and Eve? He spoke to them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them. You see, human beings were created with the need to receive truth from outside of themselves in order to make sense of their lives. And so human beings are actually meaning makers. You know, you don't live by the circumstances of your lives. You actually live by the interpretation of those circumstances. You know, my daughter Emma is here today. And when she was six, she one day, she came downstairs and she said to us these words. She said, someone has stolen my DS. Now, DS is just like a gaming console. Now, what was the truth of her situation? Her DS was missing. What was her interpretation? A thief had broken into our house and had passed all of our other appliances, our our TV, our wallets with our credit cards in. And this thief had somehow snuck upstairs and the one thing that the thief chose to steal was her DS. Now, we might laugh at that, but the truth is, is that most of us do that all the time without even realizing it. We're assigning meaning and we're interpreting the circumstances of our lives. And the reason that is, is that we were created to be revelation receivers. We were created to receive truth outside of ourselves that would help us make sense of who we are and the world around us. 
You see, Jesus said these words. Listen to these words. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. You probably know the end of it. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We were created to receive from God truth, his word, that would help us make sense of our lives. Now, post-fall, we are cut off from God and his truth. And that's why the writer of Ecclesiastes says that life without God will be meaningless, meaningless. Just a chasing after the wind. And if you haven't worked that out yet, you will work that out one day. That life without God is absolutely meaningless. But the good news of the gospel is that God came down in the person of his son, Jesus, to reveal himself to us. As John writes, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, God the Son, he has made him known. And then Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, and then he rose up again so that we could be restored to relationship with God, a relationship with God where we would receive from God truth to help us understand who we are and the world that we live in. You know, I wonder if you've ever had an unbelievable invitation. You know, sometimes we get these unbelievable emails in our, in our inbox, like from the Prince of Nigeria, saying that, you know, if we send him $200, then he will send us back like a big inheritance. Well, at our church, we had this conference one time, and before the conference, the speaker just asked me if he could have all of the names and the email addresses of everyone who was attending the conference. And so I sent him all of the emails and the names of all the people who were attending the conference, and he sent them an email just saying who he was, and he said, if you actually send me your bank details, then I will give you $200, no questions asked. Do you know how many people out of that 200 actually responded? Well, there was one, one young adult wrote back and said, who are you and what is this about? But even he didn't take up the offer because it just seemed like too unbelievable an invitation. You know, sometimes the message of Christianity can just seem like an unbelievable invitation, like receiving a free gift of $200 with no strings attached. But you see, that's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions, all the other religions of the world, you have to work your way up to God. So you have to work to worship God. Whereas we don't come in here this morning to work to worship God. We come here to celebrate God's work on our behalf. So biblical worship is the response of God's people. But secondly, biblical worship is the response of God's people to his self-revelation to his self-disclosure. Now, we've already noted that because of human fallenness, we would know nothing about God unless God, has cho unless God chose to reveal himself. And there are two primary ways that God actually reveals himself that we read about in Scripture. One way is through general revelation, and another way is through special revelation. 
Now, general revelation is that revelation of God that is generally accessible to all people through creation, through human conscience, and through common shared history of humanity. And as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So we are supposed to, when we look up and we see God's creation, we're supposed to realize that there is a creator. But there is a limit to general revelation. While as Romans 1 tells us that general revelation can tell us that God exists and can reveal to us his power as the creator, it cannot save us. And so we need special revelation. And special revelation is the idea that God has spoken in truth form using propositions to reveal who he is. You know, I now have a grandson. His name is Louis. Lewis Gardner, imagine that, imagine naming your son Louis, that's what my daughter married, named her son, I was, I was expecting her to name him, him Timon, but he actually, they named him Louis. Now, um, now Louis is only four months old, and he goos and he gars and he does all that sort of stuff, and you know, we try to, I don't know if you do this, Finn, with your, your, your kids, you try, to, you try to understand or try to work out what they're actually feeling inside. But because they're a baby and they can't talk, you don't really know what's going on inside. But there will become a day when Louis learns how to speak, and I'm looking forward to that day because we'll be able to have deep conversation. Because you can't really know someone, can you, unless you hear their words, unless they speak to you. And the truth is, is that God has spoken. As Hebrews chapter 1 says, that God has spoken in the past through prophets and in various ways, but in this last time, he has spoken to us through his son. So God has actually spoken. He's spoken in the Old Testament. There were prophets that were sent to speak the word of God. And then he spoke through his son and the apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit. They wrote that revelation down so that we have it in the Bible. And so worship needs to be word-centered. You know, the Colossian church was a church that was founded by one of Paul's uh, protégés, Epaphras. And at the church in Colossae, false teachers had infiltrated their ranks. Now, we're not 100% certain what these false teachers were teaching. But as you read the, the book of Colossians, you get the idea that they were teaching that in order to worship God, you had to do certain things. You needed to observe certain religious practices. You needed to observe certain festivals. You needed to have certain ecstatic experiences and worship angels. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Before the Reformation, worship had uh, devolved in the Catholic Church to just a following of rituals and rules. The worshiper had to follow these seven sacraments if they wanted to obtain merit before God. And today, some churches teach that unless you've actually had this mystical experience with God, you haven't really worshipped. Now, I believe that as we gather together and worship together, we will often experience God and his presence. But I fear that with some churches, they are worshipping worship rather than worshipping God. And so Paul reminds the Colossians in his letter that at the center of their worship needs to be the word. He says this in Colossians 3 verse 16, Let the word of Christ, so God's word is all about Christ. It's about lifting up Christ. All of the Old Testament points to Christ. The New Testament points back to Christ and the future coming of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Now, obviously, this means, as I said, that at the center of our worship needs to be the teaching of the Word of God. But this is not to downplay our singing together. For Paul says that we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And in this way, the Word of Christ, Christ and His gospel, and, and, and the glory of Christ will dwell in us. You know, uh, you probably have none of these people at your church, Mueller, but when I was a pastor and elder at the church that I was an elder at back in Adelaide, we had people who would only come to church to hear the sermon. In fact, they would time their coming to church so that they would miss out on the singing. They joked that they came to the 11.20 service. Our service started at 11 o'clock. But if you do that, you're missing out on an essential means by which the word of Christ can dwell in you richly. In fact, the book of Colossians, in seeking to defend the doctrine of Christ against heretics, most commentators believe that Paul actually quotes in chapter 1 from a hymn from the first century in verses 15 to 20, where he, he, he exalts the supremacy of Christ and says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he does this to remind the Colossians that what they've been singing every Sunday should be their doctrine. Now, when Paul says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I think he's saying that at the very least, there should be a variety in the songs that we sing. Now, obviously, psalms is a reference to the Old Testament Psalter, and Christians have always taken Old Testament psalms and set them to music and have sung them. But it's interesting, the Greek word hymn is not a word that's found in the Old Testament. But the Greek word hymn is actually a musical term that was common in the culture of that time. It's most likely a reference to a form that the Greeks used to use in their worship of their gods, Zeus and Hermes. And so it seems that Christians took this musical form and they added Christian lyrics to it in order to exalt Christ. You know, just as Christians have always done, you know, many of the hymns that we love from the 17th and 18th centuries were just popular tunes that Christians added Christian lyrics to. Martin Luther famously took um, songs from the German beer drinking halls and he turned them into worship tunes, just as contemporary musicians do today. Now, the term spiritual songs, I think, is a term that actually refers to songs that have been been authored by the Holy Spirit or come from the Holy Spirit. And I think this term may apply to both of the other two terms, but it is interesting that in the history of the church, whenever you see a major movement of God in reviving power, what you will find is you will find new songs being written and sung. For example, in the great evangelical awakening in England under uh, John Wesley, his brother Charles wrote more than six thousand new hymns. I don't know if you've watched the movie uh, Jesus Revolution. Who here's watched that movie Jesus Revolution? You know, it, uh, it speaks about the revival that happened among the Jesus people in the 1970s. And it's interesting. What, on, what also happened is they brought their music into the church and the Christian contemporary music genre was born with people like Keith Green and Amy Grant and Evie 
Who here remembers Evie? That's going back a bit of a time. You know, I am hoping that if God chooses to move in reviving power among the Christian community churches, I am praying that there will be new songs that are written that will present the unchanging message of Jesus for a new generation. But finally, biblical worship is not only the response of God's redeemed people to God's revelation, but biblical worship seeks to exalt God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the most common word in the Old Testament for worship is the Hebrew word shalak, and it means to prostrate yourself before someone on the ground. Literally or figuratively, to worship in the Old Testament meant bowing before someone, just like a servant would bow before a king. In the New Testament, there are two words that the authors most commonly use describing worship. The Greek word proskuneo, which means to kiss toward or to kiss the hand, and the word lutruo, which means to pay homage or to serve. And when you put both of these words together, it implies that what is at the heart of worship is adoration or exaltation. It is ascribing to someone the worth that they are due. James McDonald, he writes this in his book, Vertical Church. He says, when you worship, you are saying, this one is worth more. And at the same time, you are saying, I am worth less. He goes on to write, worship is the magnification of God and the minimization of self. You know, one of the greatest examples of this in all of the New Testament was John the Baptist. When he heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than him, he didn't rise up in pride. But he said this, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. You know, when you come to worship on Sunday, this is what should be happening in your heart. God should be increasing and Christ should be rising in your affections and your imagination and your thinking. And you should be fading into the background. He should be increasing, you should be decreasing. You see, this is what is at the heart of worship, adoring and exalting God's glory, ascribing to him the worth that is due his name, as Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The words ascribe and worship are in parallelism, meaning to worship the Lord is to ascribe to Him the worth that He is due. You know, when the royals visit Australia, what happens? Typically, the streets are lined with people. And the old joke used to be that whenever the queen went anywhere, she would smell fresh paint because people wanted to make sure that they were honouring her excellency, that they were ascribing to her the value that she was due as queen. You know, when we come into worship in this place, that is what we are doing in our hearts. We are ascribing to Jesus the value that he is worth. Now, I think that when it comes to this, people can either go to one of two extremes. Some people just define worship as something you do in the four, four walls of a building, while others go to the other extreme 
And they just say that worship is something that you do with your whole life and they have no place for corporate worship. And so they set up this false dichotomy. You're either in the Sunday worship camp or you're in the whole of life worship camp. But I've found that that's not really helpful. You know, when you just define something, worship as something that we do within these four walls, then we can actually fall into the error of dividing the sacred from the secular, thinking that worship is just about singing and therefore God is not interested in the rest of my life. But Paul would say to us in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So each and every day, getting up and saying, Jesus, I am yours. In response to your grace, I want to live for you this day. That is ascribing him the worth that he is due. But I believe it's also dangerous not to have a place for corporate worship in your life. You see, singing and verbal praise to God, while it is, um, while it is not all that worship is, as Paul reminds us in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, it's certainly not anything less than that. As Psalm 96 verses 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. You know, from cover to cover in the Bible, it ascribes a high value to God's people coming together, singing, lifting their voices in worship to God. And do you know, you cannot live the Christian life without other people. You know, my family, with a number of other families, we used to go up to this cabin when we lived in South Australia in a place called Mount Crawford, and we'd often have this weekend retreat. And in the cabin, there was this fireplace. And if you've ever started a fire, you know that at first, it's really hard to get a fire started. It takes a lot of attention. You have to tend the fire. You have to make sure you're feeding the fire right, or the fire will go out. But once you get that fire burning, you can put any old log in and almost instantly it catches fire. You know, I'm hoping, Euler Community Church, that this place will have such a passion for God's glory in Christ that any person who walks through that door will instantly catch fire. But I've also observed up at Mount Crawford this, that as soon as you take a log out of the fire, what happens? The flame goes out because without the heat of the other logs, one solitary log will find it hard to continue to burn. And I wonder whether you've lost your fire, your fire for Christ, because you're not committed to coming into this place in response to God's redemptive work, in response to the revelation of who He is. You, you're not coming into this place and with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your will, you're exalting Christ and give Him, Him the worship that He deserves. You know, we are going to finish right now with communion. And in communion, what we do is we actually Say, Jesus, you are worth so much because you died for us. And what I want to do in communion is I want all of us to have our hearts focused on Jesus and our minds 
focused on Jesus so that he is increasing and we are decreasing. So we are being minimized. Our thoughts are being minimized around ourselves, but our thoughts around Jesus and what he's done for us are being maximized. And so what we're going to do now is I'm going to play a song called Calvary's Enough. And I've got the lyrics here for it. And this song really speaks about what Jesus did on Calvary. So if you just want to put up the first verse there for us. The first verse is all about the author saying about how Christ needs to be at the center of our lives. I resolve to know, she writes, nothing but you crucified. Somehow in this room right now, it is enough. The weight of the world, too much for the souls of men, but somehow you hold it all upon the cross. And then the chorus is really simple, Calvary's enough, Calvary's enough. When I know nothing, when I know too much, what I choose to know right now is that Calvary's enough. Then she moves into verse 2, and verse 2 transports us to the cross. You resolve to die, scarlet flowing from your hands and side, covenant is sealed and ratified, you knew the cost. And as the darkness fell and the temple curtain tore, the death I deserved, you made yours upon the cross. Then the chorus again, Calvary's enough, Calvary's enough. God, I know nothing, but I know this much. And then the bridge speaks about the impact of the cross in the world. It says this, your blood has spoken. It shouts from the cross. The world is broken, but all is not lost because of Jesus and all you have done on Calvary. It's more than enough. God, I know nothing, but I know this much. Calvary is always enough. So we're going to listen to this song and the lyrics are going to come up on the screen. And in this moment, be transported to Calvary. Let him increase and you decrease. And as you hear the song and see the lyrics, in your heart, Return to Christ and eat the bread. And then at the end, I'm going to come back up and we're going to drink the cup together as a demonstration of our unity in Christ. All right? So if you'd like to play the clip, that would be fantastic. Resolve to know nothing but you crucified. Somehow in this room right now, it is enough. The weight of the world, too much for the souls of men. But somehow you hold it all upon the cross. Covenant is sealed and ratified 
you knew the cost as the darkness fell and the temple curtain tore the death I deserved you Father, we are just so thankful for the work of Christ, and we want to be a people who every Sunday come to exalt your glory in your Son and fade into the background, and then each and every day we want to live for Christ, glorifying Christ as a living sacrifice because of all that you've done for us. And so we worship Jesus this morning and honor Jesus this morning and exalt Jesus this morning in our gathering. Let's stand together and let's drink together. So let's stand up and let's drink together until he comes, until he comes.